This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. So Hey everybody, welcome to Open the Voice Gate for January 20th, 2020, the best Dragon Gate podcast in all of the English-speaking internet. I don't know if there's a Japanese-speaking internet version of this podcast. If so, who knows? We might be better than them too. Anyways, I am one of your hosts, Cyril Pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined by, I'm joined with by always, Case Low. Case, how's it going? Oh, Mike, I am happy to be here. It is a new year, a new decade. The first Open the Voice Gate recorded in 2020. And luckily for us, uh, just like in 2019, Dragon Gate hit the ground running with our first month of shows. It's been a very exciting and a very busy month. And there's a lot we have to get into today. Yeah, I feel like that them having six aired shows in January is a record for them. I, w- I want to say I like it just doesn't seem like it's been like this but then again they they've moved away from how they used to start their year off really cold since last year with the rookie tournament and now with the twin gate uh, tournament and the overall three part three-way war but let's get some of the business out of the way before we get going we are members of the voices of wrestling podcast network you can subscribe to just our feed or the VOW feed on any podcast platform of your choice. We would love a rating, five stars or else. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go to Red Circle, and there's a nice little button where you can donate. You can either do a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation, and any donations would are not needed, but they'd be appreciated. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Fujiheya. That's F-U-J-I-I-H-E-Y. A, like Don Fuji, case is at underscore in your case, or you can follow the podcast account. It is at Open Voice Gate, where Case and I, we've been trying to get more active with that over the last few weeks. So it used to just be show postings and cards, but we're trying to get a little bit more into it, kind of become the one stop on Twitter for your Dragon System news. So Case, this has been an incredible 2020 so far for Dragon Gate. Before we get into reviewing the first three shows, uh, what what's your thoughts on 2020 right now in Dragon Gate? Like, what, what's your feeling coming out of the first week of shows that they had? I am very uncertain of where things are going, but I'm very excited at the potential that this year has because I noticed it from really the opening match on the January 11th KBS Hall show that ever since the units reset in December, and now we've got the three units, it's generational warfare that the company feels different because 
we've never seen some of these combinations of teams. We've never seen wrestlers teaming up with one another in the way they are now. Most of the guys on the roster have new gear. We obviously have a fresh heel with BB Hulk now. There's a lot going on in this company. And if I had to project out to what even Dead or Alive would look like, or even Champion Gate in March for that matter, I really don't know the direction that things are heading. But I'm very excited at all of the potential that is on the table for not only good storytelling, but for fresh matchups because things have never really been shaken up like this. And we have an entirely new generation of talent that weren't around for, let alone Blood Warriors Junction 3 in 2011, which was the ba- the last major two-unit warfare. But, but even like in 2015, when Drangate uh, teased doing generational warfare and there were some hints of that, it never really got off the ground, but they had a July, the July 2015 Corican show was a generational theme show. We have an entirely new crop of talent that weren't around for that and that we haven't really seen a unit shake up this big since the Skywalkers and the Benkeis and the Yuki Yoshiokas entered the company. So we're now entering uncharted waters with a lot of these guys and i'm very excited to see in the coming months uh who sinks and who swims because guys are going to get lost in the shuffle when you have this few amount of units when there's three units you're only going to have so many headliners and so many guys are even in important matches and the rest of the guys are going to fall to the bottom of the card and i'm very curious to see who does that and who rises to the occasion yeah just just so that listeners who weren't around or haven't watched back the all-out war between Blood Warriors and Junction 3. Just to get a a frame of reference, the most recent uh, rookie who was involved in that war was T-Hawk. So this is like a whole generation of students who, and roster people who've never been a part of one like this. So this is so very new. And I think you brought up a really good point about people being kind of lost and people stepping up. Something I've been doing for this is tracking kind of like how the sides are looking after each show like i have a list of each of the matches that have been billed as like toriumon versus dragon gate red versus toriumon and like you take a look at it and we're already starting to get to see some trends come out such as hyo has been the lost post for red like that's something that i didn't necessarily thought would happen before we got in here but that's been the case and then you have someone like KZ, who's been the person picking up most of the wins for the Trueborns. So it's kind of interesting. Like, we're starting to see a couple trends come out. There's been about 45 war matches so far. And it's interesting because, like, I've been keeping statistics on this case. And who do you think RED has more pinfalls against or more falls against? The Trueborns or Toriumon? I would think the Trueborns. You are right. Yeah. Which one do you think the Trueborns have more pinfalls on? likely Torimon, just given the pattern. Well, yeah. Okay, so you pretty much figure out how things are going right now. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's real interesting. It's an interesting reset. I that There's been no indication that this is going to be a short one that they will do up until, like, Dead or Alive and then start reforming. This seems like to be the full-year plan. So it's going to give a lot of people a fresh coat of paint. Some people have great new gear. Some people's gear, I feel terrified about but it's been pretty interesting so far so do you want to get in i think the plan for the show is for the kyoto kbs hall and osaka show we're just going to talk about some highlights from it then really get into cork and so case okay, so unless you had like any other big points let's get into kyoto 
Yeah, let's do it. This is the January 11th Kyoto KBS Hall Show, an attendance of 6.30, a super no vacancy full house for the first Dragon Gate show of the year. And Mike, what match do you want to start us off with? Well, I think it's, this is something just to touch on, was we had a surprise return of Martin Kirby. He was in match zero. It wasn't really announced that he was coming over, and it's kind of exciting the fact that, you know, Kirby is back in it. He's unaligned in this war, and it's nice to see him get a return after he had what I thought was a really fun and interesting tour that, if anything, I feel like he impressed the Dragon Gate overall population. Yeah, I was actually thinking right after I finished the Cork and Hall show on the 15th of what role, if any, we will see foreigners play in the generational warfare because there are guys out there that are still unsigned that have prominent careers or at least have prominent tours with Dragon Gate. And I do wonder if at any point they are going to aid the Trueborns. Martin Kirby obviously only has the one tour from last year. But like I said in my reviews on VoicesWrestling.com, and like we said here, he was someone that from the start seemed to get it, which is funny given his style because he is so much different than a Rich Swan or a Ricochet or an Uha Nation in terms of his in-ring style. But where Martin Kirby shined brightest was he seemed to have a, a connection with the crowd, a certain charisma that translates. It's, I think, to a Japanese crowd more than any other crowd in the world. And Kirby just hit the ground running. And even though he's worked openers and match zeros and, you know, I don't really ever think has been on the uh, the main side of the card in a featured match. He's someone that the crowd seems to be invested in whenever he's out there doing his grappling. And it's nice to say. Yeah, he is someone that. If anything, and I think this is one of the things that we got really early with Jason Lee, he gets the style of like levity that happens in these kind of matches, and that's not necessarily something you see with Gaijin who come aboard. And I think that him being able to do this and being being able to back it up with his ring style, as you said, pretty much as long as nothing bad happens, I could see carving a niche for him in Dragon Gate. So I, I was really stoked to see him back. He faced Kota Minonora. It was a it was a match zero. I just wanted to mention Martin Kirby being back before we got really into the meat of the card. Absolutely. Okay, so what match from Kyoto did you want to touch on? My favorite match on the card, and it was the only one on this show in particular that I gave uh, four stars to. I gave it four and a quarter, actually, is match number five, a block B match in the Open the Twin Gate uh, tournament. It was Yamato and Ben K defeating the unaffiliated Masaki Mochizuki and gamma and you know I, we've almost run out of things to say about ben k and mochizuki and how good they are and yamato is someone who when motivated is someone that is an elite tier wrestler someone who at the top of his game i think there are very few people better than yamato the issue with yamato is that he's rarely at the top of his game now but then there's gamma and for as excited as i was for this match because the the twin gate tournament had a lot of interesting teams of either guys that had never teamed before or, in the case of Yamato and Ben K, uh, the two aces of the Dragon Gate unit. I mean, you, you can argue KZ, but KZ is not a former Open the Dream Gate champion, and these two guys are. This felt like an all-Japan super team, a Kobashi Masawa, a Kobashi Akiyama, a Kawada Taue. Obviously not in terms of legacy, but in terms of stature within the company, Yamato and Ben K are as big as it gets, and I was fascinated by the 
idea of these two teaming against one another throw them on the opposite side of the ring it's mochizuki it's guaranteed to be a good match but something that you and i were losing our minds over on this first week of dragon gate content this year was how good gamma was in this match and the rest of his matches over the week do you want to talk a little bit about gamma and his early 2020 worker of the year candidacy yeah that, that that's that's something that is kind of a joke with me but it's also the stark difference of where what gamma is doing this year versus to where he was pretty much throughout the majority of over generations so we're talking about like three or four years basically after osaka zenaroke stopped teaming he really just didn't do anything for four years it feels like four years but the cool thing about this is mochizuki and gamma are sitting out the war they basically said we aren't torimon trained this is something between between y'all uh gamma is a former osaka pro the original osaka pro guy and then of course mochizuki was in war so they've sat out and they've kind of formed like this veterans team that has been really exciting it seems like maybe that gamma just just has a spring in his step since he's actually doing something of consequence maybe and it's not just him do it it's not just like where i count how many bumps he's taking a night he actually seems invested in it and with uh the, this uh trueborn super team it just gave them to kind of just be these are four kind of like the larger guys on the roster. I mean, like Gamma, for a guy of his age, he's a pretty thickly built guy and he's in good shape. So, like, it was just like meat hitting against meat for this match. And it just was a whole lot of fun, as you said. Like, this this Troopborn super team over the course of this week, they really kind of put the mark on, okay, where is this team in the promotion considering what the what their path to their final match was. And it just was like... A really exciting thing. Kyoto is one of my favorite venues. And this is overall, like, this was easily the match of the night and probably one of the better matches that they've had at KBS Hall in recent months. And I just really enjoyed it. Of course, Mochizuki being Mochizuki has great chemistry with the two other guys. But Gamma held up his end of the deal, too. And I think that's kind of the, uh, the how do I want to put it? That, that That's kind of like what's going to be the conceit with Gamma wrestler of the year 2020 is how often he's going to hold up his end of the deal yeah if he and mochizuki are teaming all throughout the year i'm very curious to see what gamma's output at the end of the year is going to look like because the last time i remember enjoying a gamma match this much and, and i gave this match four and a quarter stars i mean it will ultimately just be a spreadsheet match halfway down the bottom of the page at the end of the year but for this match at the start of the year, I haven't seen a ton of great wrestling yet. I've seen some very high end stuff, but the year is young. There's going to be more and more great matches. as The year progresses with every company I watch, which granted I'm scaling back, but I still watch a lot and I'll buy a lot. I mean too much wrestling, but I haven't enjoyed a gamma match like this since Osaka 06, when he was teaming with Shima in 2014 and they were wrestling T Hawk and Ata constantly. And I, I think it goes to the power of, perhaps Mochizuki, perhaps it's motivation. I don't know. All I know is that I love this match and, you know, it's over a week old now and I don't take notes on house shows because, you know, I've been taking notes on every cork and in pay-per-view for five years now. Let me watch the house shows in peace. Uh, so I, I can't give play by play, but I have uh, mental imagery of the finishing stretch of this match still in my head because it was so hard hitting and so quick. And, and all four guys were, 
really, really on top of their game. And you mentioned that it's probably the best match that KBS Hall has had in forever, which is something that I agree with because Mike and I often talk about how dire some of these house shows are. And I think it's more a reflection of Kobe Sambo Hall. I actually think the KBS Hall shows typically have a hot crowd and have a lot of fun matches. It's typically a two-hour watch. They're easy shows. But very rarely does anything peak as high as this. So to have a hot crowd in a beautiful building and a great match was very, very special. So this, to me, is the one recommendation I can give from the January 11th show. Um, I enjoyed Jason Lee versus Genki Horiguchi and Kaisuke Okuda and Punch Tamananga versus Masato Yoshino and Susumu Yokosuka, but those were more, more fun matches. Those set the table for what was to come later on in the week more than anything. But if you can find the show, because unfortunately it's no longer on the Dragon Gate Network and we tried to record as soon as we could, but just for a variety of reasons, now is when we are recording. Yamato and Benkei versus Mochizuki and Gama is the recommendation from 111. Yeah, the, the the only other match that I would say and actually made my recommendation list is the Okuda Tomonaga versus Yoshino Ikosuka match, just because it was a match that really felt like it had stakes to it. Of course, Susumu now is a All Japan Junior Heavyweight Champion. Yoshino openly says he has a target on his neck, and both these guys kind of went after it. And it, I just thought it was like a really solid and fun mid-card tag team match i still had it like at three and a half stars but it's worth if, if you're going to be like if you're going to cherry pick from those shows basically this two match stretch is what i would watch i would say everything else just seemed like it was kind of there in my mind other than seeing the burgeoning kai and strong machine j tag team in the main event holy shit doesn't the kai strong machine j team kind of work though like i was Watching that match, and the main event of the show was Kai and Strong Machine J, and they lost to BB Hulk and Cosmo Sakamoto, which makes sense. But I was watching this this tag match and going, I think I want to see more of this team. I think I like Kai and Strong Machine J, which the idea of Kai just fully embracing his Dragon Gate Trueborn uh, path of he joins the company two years ago and is hated and has somehow stuck around long enough to where now he's kind of charming. And I assume Kai is going to bow out and say, you know, I'll team with Mochizuki on the undercard. I'll do something. No, Kai is defending Dragon Gate's honor and is doing it happily. And he's doing it with the greenest wrestler on the roster and Strong Machine J. And they main event this show. Nothing about this makes sense. If you would have told me a year ago that a Dragon Gate show is going to be main evented by Kai, I, Cosmo Sakamoto, Strong Machine J, and a heel BB Hulk, I would have told you you were out of your mind in every single way possible. But no, this match happened, and although it wasn't a great match, I was entertained uh, by the story that took place here, by the characters involved. But it's not its not worth watching. But this Kai and Strong Machine J team, it might not sound that appealing, but I promise they are not that bad of a team. It- the one word I would call them is charming. Like, like they're just like a charming bunch of guys who are just there, and I like that. But I think that's probably, we gave Kyoto enough uh, time as is. Let's let's skip ahead to Osaka, unless you had anything else you want to point out. No, let's go to Osaka. All right, Osaka was at Edeon 2 on the 12th. Sadly, this show is also off the network. This was a super no vacancy full house. A jump up of... 234 tickets sold between last year and this year. Uh, 
not a whole lot actually really ha- happened wrestling wise over like the new year in Osaka. I think the only big show I could think of was the Gaora Russell One Wonder Carnival that was at Edeon One, and this was almost two thirds of tickets sold there. Uh, just overall, this might have been the loudest I've seen Edeon Two for any company, pretty much for like the last five years. Like this card, top to bottom, was just a blast to watch and. It definitely had some matches on here that stepped out and were something special, but just the atmosphere of Edeon Arena 2, just everything that happened here kind of came together and ended up having a really strong house show. I think when we look at back on this year, this might actually end up being the house show of the year. I mean, just because I'm looking at my notebook right now, what I have written down, Case, I mean, I had two star, I had two matches that were at four stars or greater. Weakest match on the show was two and a half stars, and everything else was in the threes. If not, like, one uh, one match was also approaching four stars as well. So I thought this was an incredible show. Uh, what were your thoughts overall, and what match do you kind of want to talk about first? Well, I, I love this venue. I wish Drangate ran here more. I wish we saw more companies film shows here. Osaka 1, the big building, is obviously great, but there's something about the atmosphere of, of Osaka 2 when it's a hot crowd like this, I mean, this felt like a show out of 2011, 2012 Drangate, where there were a lot of moving parts. You could tell the company was moving in a different direction and not all of the pieces had settled yet. And it made for a really exciting and a really engaging show. And and like I said, I don't take notes on these house shows more often than not. So I had the show on in the background, uh, you know, kind of one eye on this, one eye on the TV. I believe I was, I believe it was a Sunday when I was watching this. So I likely had on uh, the NFL playoffs, but this show completely took my attention by the end of it. I was stunned at, again, how loud the crowd was for this and how exciting some of the matches were. And for me, my match of the night was the opener. It was KZ and Dragon Dia defeating Dragon Kid in Kagatora. In what was a phenomenal match, and it's something that it, it seemed to happen overnight. It, it happened with the snap of the, of the fingers that Dragon Dia has not only become this pushed commodity in Dragon Gate, but his execution is now matching the push. Because when he came into the company with all of the hype, and he was supposed to be Dragon Kid's protege, the work wasn't there. And I I was higher on him than you were. We argued a little bit about Dia and where his ceiling might be. But the fact is now he's delivering, and he's delivering really exciting matches. And because Drangate has set his career up in a way to where now it feels like he can beat anybody. I mean, he's pinned Kagatora twice. He pins Susumu Yokozuka and Cork and Hall. All of his finishing stretches matter because I really believe, other than the exception of Ata, Benkei, BB Hulk, and maybe Yamato, I kind of think Daya can pin anybody on the roster right now, and it would make sense. And this was a match where he pins Kagatora. He's got some near falls on Dragon Kid. KZ is there and killing it. I mean, he is in such good shape um, from a, a human perspective, and it it looks like everything he's doing in the ring is so calculated and so smooth because he's just on another plane right now. And if you look at a picture of Casey from five years ago, it's hard to believe that is the same human as the one in the ring right now. But I just, I just love this match. I gave this four and a quarter as well. I, I think very, very highly of Dragon Daya. I'm glad to see they're doing stuff with him. And this is a perfect show opener, 13 minutes almost and an exciting finish and a great match. 
Yeah, this was when I went three and three quarters. This was the one that I was close to going four on, but I just it just didn't reach that height to me. But I could totally see how you th- you put it that way. I think one of the things that made this uh, makes this first week so interesting is you have someone like Kagatora who has just really existed since he dropped the Brave Gate title, and he's teaming with Dragon Kid, a guy that they may have teamed before in Warriors, and that might just be their extent of their teaming together. And they had kind of like this fun team. Uh, worth noting, like this was like a big match of, oh, we can see the color schemes coming in play here as everyone in Toriumon is wearing a shade of blue. So even Kakatora getting in on the act there and Dragon Kid. And yeah, Daya is someone that pretty much the last three months, he's gone from being an also ran now to being someone that is deserving of being Dragon Kid's heir. He was listed as... Uh, shoe pros a uh, person to watch out for in 2020 in dragon gate and i think that's a very fair assessment here and he's just someone that it seems like his big thing was not necessarily the time uh, the, like him being injured like this he just needed the ring time i feel like and now that he has like this streak of not getting hurt not being sick it seems like it's all coming together for him and it's coming together for him in such a way that we we have Basically, every single belt will have been defended by the end of the cork and on the 7th. And he right now is the person that I would mark in as Kaido Ishida's next Bravegate defense. And KZ, you know, looks silky smooth as always. Dragon Kid was solid. It just was a very great opener. Like, if you give me an opener like this on any Dragon Gate card, I'm going to be as pleased as punch. And I'm not going to have a whole lot negative to say about it. But... The match that I really wanted to talk about, this was probably my match of the first week of Dragon Gate's year, is the other second round match. There was four second round matches for the vacant Twin Gate titles here. This was the semi-man event. It was the Dragon Gate team of Jason Lee and Yosuke Santamaria versus Masato Yoshino and Susumu Yokosuka and Case. This was probably the best the Yosuke Santamaria performance of their entire career. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic when I say that. Yes. I, you, Maria is, is a funny career to look back and just the, the peaks and valleys of it because she really does have some matches that are, are outstanding in the, you know, the Katoka stuff and her Brave Gate run. And th- this match, you, you and I talked about it a little bit. I, I feel like I have to give a retroactive four stars to this match because as time has gone on, uh, you know, a week after the fact, I recognize this match was great in that this match had a ridiculous finishing stretch that had Masada Yoshino throwing maybe the hardest lariats of his career, which is funny given the big matches and the big venues he's been in. And now he's at Osaka too, and he is clubbing Santa Maria's head off with these lariats. But, and I told, I told you this, this is a dumb reason not to like the match. I just wasn't expecting this to go 18 minutes when it started. (laughs) And I was thrown off by the fact that it kept going and I was enjoying it, but I was going, God, this is a long match. This is, this is going for a really long time. And I couldn't get that out of my head. So, you know, in my, in my dumb spreadsheet, I've got a 3.75, but I realize it's likely a better match than that. It's one that if I was reviewing the show, I would have had to have watched it twice just because given the names involved, I mean, it's Jason Lee and Maria against two legends of the company 
I'm thinking, well, this is this is going to go 10, 12 minutes, and I'm going to move on with my life, and you know, Yoshino and, y- and Yokosuka are going to win easily. And then it, it becomes this struggle and this prolonged bout, and I, I really enjoyed it. I just wasn't expecting it, and it kind of threw me off. But the floor is yours. You seem to enjoy this match a ton. Like, this was a match that, on this week, I had two four-and-a-half-star matches. And for me... I've realized how like stingy I am with Dragon Gate ratings over the last few years. So me doing this is kind of out of the normal for me. But it just was, you had Edeon 2 rocking and rolling as loud as this has been in years. You have uh, this Yoshino Susumu tag team, which for as great as Maria was and Jason Lee was solid as well. The stakes that are now presented with every Masato Yoshino match has now made it one of the more compelling things in wrestling because everyone wants to be the person to get the finish on Yoshino's career. Everyone at the same time knows Susumu's the junior champion in all Japan. If I get a pinfall on Susumu, that might mean that I could be up for a title shot. So there's added stakes with it. You had, as you said, Yoshino throwing Haymaker Lariats. The probably the most ridiculous and best sell of a lightning spiral in wrestling history from a Maria on the finish. And yeah, I I feel like if it's a match that you now know it's 18 minutes and you watch it, you're going to be like, okay, I expect like the match phases. But if you're watching this unspoiled, I totally get how you were like kind of looking at your watching and like, this is the 15 minute call. Is this thing going 20? Like what's going on here? Like expecting it not to go so long, but it just was a lot about it. Like, it was a very brutal match, and it showed the best kind of Maria possible, which is underdog Maria. Like, dropping all of the Exotico things and just focusing on Maria as an underdog, and I think that's what made this match super special. Yeah, I completely agree. I recognize that I'm in the wrong on this match. I was just so stunned that it went as long as it did that it it became a distraction almost. Uh but to, to my knowledge, and I'm just throwing together some research really quickly, but it's hard to believe that Yoshino and Yokozuka have been in the company for as long as they have. I mean, they are Team Torimon. Uh, they are from, uh, you know, they're a, a term apart in terms of when they came into the company. And this is only, I believe, their fifth or sixth time in a two-on-two tag match teaming with one another. And they have the chemistry they do. It's just incredible. Yeah, it's it's remarkable given that both their creators are now close to twenty years old, and I and there's been so few tag team matches with them as a tag team, and I really enjoyed this team during this week, and I hope that this isn't it for this team. Like I feel like that this is a good use for both guys, seeing that Susumu now has priorities in other companies, and Yoshino's on his retirement tour. Well, and I, it'll come up again in the in the Corkin review that we're just about to get to, but if anything. I think this unit uh, disbandment and this unit switch is going to favor guys that were in the Jimmies more than almost anybody because even when the Jimmies disbanded, they still, for the most part, stuck together. I mean, Kondo went heel and and went his own way, but Horiguchi and Susumu were natural vibes, and even before natural vibes formed, the Jimmies were still based basically teaming with one another just without the names. So now we're seeing Yokosuka and Yoshino, which is a new team. And then on the Korokin, which I'll, I'll get into when we get to the match, but Naruki 
Doi is now teaming with Kagatora, and that feels very fresh and very new. So if the shakeup is going to benefit anybody from a uh, staleness perspective of, of adding some life into their work, I think it's going to be the guys from the Jimmies more so than anybody. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, other than like seeing the younger generation who've mainly only been in one or two units getting a chance to team with each other. I think that this gives a breath of fresh air for those older guys as well. Uh, the last match I wanted to touch on, which... I think is the loudest that Osaka 2 has been in years. I know I said that before, but this one was even louder. Was the main event. It was the final second round match of the Twin Gate title decision tournament where the former champions, Ada and Big Arshimizu, lost to the Trueborn Ace team of Yamato and Benkei in 18 minutes. I only went four stars on this match, but it was very much like a, a Big E match where it was kind of freewheeling. There was brawling in points and some other things, but... My lord, the calls that were coming for Yamato and Benkei, you would, you would think it was 2000 with like the kind of fandom that like Shima and Magnum Tokyo got. Like It was just like a different pitch of scream. It was more like crowds crying out of desperation rather than just general crowd calls in this match. Uh, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, we're on almost the same page. I ended up giving it three and a half. I think just a, a bit of a taste thing of... Uh, my patience for Biggie matches is is a little less than yours, although I do enjoy the team. But no, you're right. I mean, this was this was great. I I like I said at the top of the review. I love Osaka too. I love the crowd. The Champion Gate shows are always a hit. And you're right in the sense that this match felt like a big deal. And I wonder as the year progresses if just having the Yamatos and the Binkays and the KZs representing Dragon Gate for whatever reason, whatever optical illusion that, that plays on the native fans, if that is really going to elevate them in the eyes of those of those hometowns and those villages that they visit, because for as much as they are stars, for the fact that they are still drawing great houses, it sometimes feels like they are missing something that the Shimas and the Magnum Tokyos and the prime Masaki Mochizuki's had. And I don't know what that is. I don't even know if that's fair because obviously in my perspective and, and for the most part yours, we were watching the Magnum and the Shima uh, stuff after the fact. We were watching that with history and with context and with this aura and lore behind it. So I don't know if it's fair to say that watching, you know, Ben K wrestle a Kobe Samba Hall match, I don't know if it's right to go, well, you know, He's good, but he's no Shima. I mean, this isn't exactly, you know, 2002 Torimon. I, I don't think that's a fair way of looking at it, but I do wonder if just with the current unit alignment and the clear characters and the clear motivations of this all are going to add some prestige to the names of these Trueborns in a way that we haven't really seen yet. Yeah, I think that's a pretty astute point, especially when you look at the past All Out Wars, where... The big objective in the Blood Warriors and Junction 3 feud was, okay, Tozawa's back. We need to get him set up there. And then the basically for the next year and a half, they had Shima setting the table for what would become the Big Six era. So I, I definitely see like that there might be a through line where you have the uh, Trueborn top team being portrayed like this. And eventually by the end of this year, however this how long this goes, you will have... Benkei, who already who's treated like an ace by this company, but is going to become even more perceived by the fans as the ace. And then you have someone like Casey, who's been strict upper mid card with some great performances, finally taking that step as up as well. Yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, it's an exciting time, and I think 
uh, these two house shows did a good job of setting the table for what ended up being an excellent Cork and Hall show. Yeah, so we're going to get a little bit more in depth the Cork and Hall show. This was from the 15th. This was their Tokyo debut for 2020. Attendance was down. It was 1565. Still a super no vacancy, but, you know, Tokyo's been run to death by everyone over the last few years, or last few weeks, rather. And this will be the uh, first of three Dragon System shows in Cork and Hall over a one-month period. So could be that people are really like waiting for the Torimon reunion or, or waiting for the February show. But it seemed like the crowd was still active for it. I mean, 1565 for them. I mean, it wasn't like that there was a lot of empty seats. It just was not as strong. It, like they went from two straight sellouts to this. And I thought this card overall was not as good as the Edeon 2 show, but I still thought it was a pretty strong Corkin show that was highlighted by the Twin Gate match that I thought was exceptional. Okay, so what were your thoughts on the show overall? On paper, it was a strange show. Uh, there are a lot of Corkins where I go in and I know there are going to be matches that I'm looking forward to, some matches that I'm not as into, but I, I kind of have a feel for what's going to hit and what isn't going to just on paper. And, and I'll, more often than not, that seems to deliver. But th this show going in, obviously we didn't know the main event because we only had the semifinal matches announced, but I couldn't get a good feel on a lot of these matches and, and what exactly was going to take place. And as the show continued to trudge along, I ended up loving almost every match on this show. I, I really enjoyed this Cork and Hall show. It's another one where people can either jump in now or they can get left behind. But if you're wondering, well, you know, it's early in the year. I'm looking for more stuff to watch. What company? I mean, to me, you just have to watch. Oh, and you know, I, th this is the introduction into Dragon Gate 2020 because this is what the company is going to look like this year. You are going to see these names plus Ultimo Dragon, who was not on the show, but these are going to be the feature names and they were in prominent positions. And it's just a great table setting show for what should be an excellent year. But I, I really ended up enjoying the show. I, I think I've got a lot to say about it. All right, let's get into it then. The opener was a was a unaligned eight-person tag. One side was a, a line side. It was the Torimon army of Don Fuji, Yuzushi Kanda, Kanichiro Rai, and Konamama Ichikawa. Of course, that is the new name for Stalker versus the unaligned team. It's only really unaligned because it's Maria, Punch Tobinaga, Problem Dragon, Mondai Ryu, and Martin Kirby. Went just under six minutes with Maria putting away Kanda with the Nero Luchi. I thought this was fine. I thought this was like a not an offensive opener. It just was kind of what a cork and opener usually is around these days. Yeah. The only note I have from this, and I mentioned it in my review over at voices of wrestling.com is, uh, there's a moment where Ichikawa lands a bridging German suplex. I forget on who, but he gets a deep two count out of it. And in the background, you can see Genki Horiguchi smiling from ear to ear. And it is such a fun moment in professional wrestling. It is just so enjoyable to watch just the joy of the idea of Ichikawa winning a match. It is it was a it was something that warmed my heart when I saw it, quite honestly. Yeah, and that's the cool thing about the the three way uh war is that basically all three sides, whenever they have a match, everyone else is out there. So instead of maybe having one or two seconds you have the entirety of Torimon out there. You have the entirety of Dragon Gate out there cheering everyone on, and you get someone who's so great at being a second because they get the little things like 
Horiguchi out there, and I thought that was really something a whole lot of fun. Yeah, other than that, it was a nothing opener, but I really enjoyed that moment. And, and you know, it's always nice to see Martin Kirby back in Cork and Hall. Yep. So the second match was the first of the two semifinals to decide the new Twin Gate champions. It was the Trueborn team of KZ and Dragon Daya versus the RED team of BB Hulk and Kazuma Sakamoto. Uh, Hulk pinned Daya in 12 minutes and 31 seconds with the first flash. And I guess this might be the, the first time we could really get into it. What's your opinion on this current run of Heel Hulk coming out this first week? I am very into the idea of heel BB Hulk. It was something that I was not expecting when he turned. It was something I was all for, however, um, for a number of reasons, as we've talked about in the past on the show, I believe when we were previewing Kobe world, I told the story of uh, the uh, dragon door show, uh, the debut dragon door show that was supposed to have Mystico on it. Uh, and Mystico never got on his flight to Japan. BB uh, Hulk showed up with flowers to Cork and Hall and jokingly offered to wrestle for free, which really pissed Ultimo Dragon off. So we're seeing 15 years later the payoff of that of Hulk saying, screw this, screw Dragon Gate. You guys are obsessed with Ultimo Dragon. And you Torimon guys, you guys are Ultimo Dragon. So I have an issue with all of this. So I, I enjoyed the heel turn from a number of perspectives. And I think ultimately he works better as a heel. The team with Sakamoto's interesting. I don't have us I I feel like they have a great match in them and and granted the main event was outstanding so maybe maybe they've already peaked who knows but I think this is one of those weird twin gate teams of high ceiling low floor and we saw both in one night because this match for as much as I enjoyed uh the prior work that these two teams had done in the tournament this was a miss for me for whatever reason I didn't think Hulk worked well with Daya. I didn't think KZ worked well with Sakamoto. I just thought it was a little bit of a mess, and it was unfortunate that this uh, happened on a bigger stage and that this wasn't a house show match, that it was a Corican match. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like Daya has much chemistry of Hulk, though Daya, Daya's best moments were of Sakamoto in this match. And I think the same thing could be said about KZ and Sakamoto not having great chemistry. I think that's kind of what came to play here. I mean, they were given ample time. It just seemed like that this was maybe not meshing and maybe the match format should have focused on the people that do have chemistry in it here. I went two and three quarters on it. It was, it wasn't bad. It just was kind of there. So, I mean, it was kind of a little bit disappointing and Dayak, I wouldn't even say it was a setback. It just was not necessarily his best performance since coming back. Yeah. I, I, I would miss, uh, for, from four talented guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I mean, that's a good way to put it. The, other semifinal was after this. This was the Trueborn top team of Yamato and Benkei versus Yoshino and Susumi Okoska. Uh, Yamato got the win in 12 minutes and 32 seconds with a pin on Yoshino, which that's a big thing. I mean, Yoshino does, historically does not take very many direct falls, and he took one here. And I really like this match. It was pretty. It was pretty much like Ben and, Ch- and Susumu have great chemistry because they just have like a beef off. And then they started working on Yoshino's neck, and it was done in a pretty great way. The way that Yoshino sells his neck when everyone now knows it's like the central thing about him has been pretty impressive. Like he shakes out his arm, like acting like he doesn't have feeling in the arm, which he might not have, to be honest. And then basically Yoshino realizing I don't necessarily have the strength to do things, so I'm going to go for my flash pens. And I thought that overall this told a pretty good story and I felt like that this main event upheld their bargain or the semifinal upheld their bargain a lot more than the uh, twin than the one before it the twin gate semifinal before it 
Mike, look at the names of this match. I mean, it. this was the third match on a Cork and Hall show, which I understand in the context of the tournament why it was the third match. But these are like four of the five most protected acts in the company. I think Doi would be the fifth one at this point, not only because he's Dreamgate champion, but just the, the you know, his career has, has gotten to that point. This is the third match on a Cork and Hall show. And like I said in the review, I think the crowd slowly started to put that together. And by the end of the match, it was as hot as an, as an upper, an upper card match, a, an upper mid card match where again, you just, th- these are the stars of the company and Yoshino is the legend. Yokosuka is, is not only so protected, but is also the all Japan junior champion now. And then you've got Ben Kane Yamato. And uh, like you said, I, I mean, the Yoshino thing is going to be fascinating to watch this year because we haven't hit the point where he's looked at as not being as strong as the other competitors. It is still a you you have to hit Yoshino with an absolute death blow to pin him, and that's what Yamato did in this match. But it was just it was really fun to see uh, such a loaded undercard match with such star power because we don't really ever see that in Dragon Gate. Yeah, and the fact that because of the tournament. This set up the very obvious finale of Hulk versus Yamato. I feel like that this also added some to it. And, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting time period. I am pretty certain that unless something tragic happens, we're probably going to see Yoshino around at least through Gate of Destiny just because it's in his hometown. And it's just like a. I still think it's the most compelling storyline in wrestling right now. It's just like everyone has a clear motivation because they know what yoshino means that if they're the ones to retire yoshino that's a feather in their cap that no one can ever take away so i thought that that was really interesting as well and of course after this match the attacks on yoshino continued as red all hit the ring and did a huge beatdown on yoshino including a tombstone pile driver onto a bunch of chairs from ada and it kind of seems like that maybe they're trying to position it so Ada maybe gets the big heel boost of being the one retire Yoshino, or at least that's what they're teasing this early in the year. Yeah, I could have done without this angle. I was not. I, I It happened too early in the year because, again, I think you and I both expect Yoshino to be around past Kobe World and at least into the latter half of the calendar. And I, I'm just not, I'm not as into uh, the idea of already constantly laying in these vicious attacks as much as I am guys trying to to shoot their shot and to knock it out of the park when they're in the ring with Yoshino so I wasn't I mean it's there are far more atrocities in wrestling booking but I wasn't into this angle yeah that's fair that that, that's fair it does seem like that it was a way for them to try to just generate more heat for RED and try to get it very clear that these guys are the big heels yeah no that that I would completely agree with the next match was the only other unaffiliated match on the show as one side was the unaffiliated team of Masaki Mochizuki, Gamma, and the two recently debuted rookies of Kento Kabune and Takedo Kame versus the true the Trueborn team that kind of is the remnants of Mochizuki Dojo and Jason Lee with Jason Lee, Keisuke Okuda, Yuki Oshioka, and Kota Minora. Okuda penned Kame in 5 minutes and 41 seconds with the lights out. So, Case, this was kind of the first really big look at Kame and Kabune. And I was pretty impressed with both of them so far. Yeah, I, I like these rookies a lot. I think they're very different, and I think they have drastically different career trajectories. Kento Kabune could very easily be a star 
I really like what I've seen from him in both of this match and then his debut tag match, which is up on the Dragon Gate Network. Um, he was teaming, I believe, with Yamato against Kaime and Naruki Doi. I might have had the veterans flip there, but the fact is, Kabune has a presence about him that I am very into and that I think is going to suit him well the more ring time he gets and the farther he goes along in his career. He is someone that uh, I think is very clearly trained in the Dragon Gate Dojo. He kind of has just this Dragon Gate feel to him where he kind of looks like Doi and he kind of wrestles like he's been very, I don't think he spent time wrestling elsewhere is what I'm trying to say. He is very clearly a product of the dragon system, uh, both in terms of his in-ring ability and the charisma and the presence that he gives. I was really into him in this match. He's someone that seems to be pretty young, could still probably grow. I think his body's still filling out a little bit. Um, but I'm very excited to see what he brings to the table this year. Then as for uh, Taketo Kamai, he is tiny. Um, if you look at the Gaiora website, they list him at 163 centimeters, which is roughly 5'3". So he is smaller than Kotoka. He is uh, probably smaller than Taiji Ishimori. I mean, he is a a very, very small human. But if that's going to work anywhere, it's going to work in Dragon Gate. And I think, I not to bestow uh, these labels on them immediately, but, but Kabuna, I could... I could see being in the Dream Gate picture at some point in his career. I don't know if it's going to happen. I've seen him work three matches, but it wouldn't shock me if at some point he is in the Dream Gate picture. Kamai, on the other hand, I think is destined for Brave Gate, Triangle Gate territory, which is by no means an insult because the world needs ditch diggers too. And Kamai is much better than a ditch digger because he is someone that seems to have a lot of talent and a lot of potential, but he is built so differently than the rest of the field. And it's going to be a hindrance at times, and at times it's going to work in his favor. But if you're wondering which one is which, Kamai is the one that is incredibly small. Yeah, and Kobune has a little bit more of a look that makes sense that you would throw the doi tag on him. He's someone that's incredibly good shape. He wears just tights. like, And that's something that's also become a thing over the last few years. Dragon Gate has mostly done away with the... Uh, black uh bicycle shorts now now they pretty much go straight to whoever their intro ring gear is and kobune i think he's probably about U- ut size so i think like you said 165 centimeters i think that's kind of where i would knock him as well i like i like kamai i think he's a very kind of interesting person i think i i think i'm drawn to people who might not necessarily be fit into the mold he seemed it seems like both of them might be former judokas which makes a lot of sense with like the history of judo practitioners in Dragon Gate, but they meshed really well. They were on the uh, pre-Prime Zone, uh, what they used to be called Dragon Gate Next, but now it's kind of just what they do before they tape the Prime Zone shows. They've been on it pretty much for the last six months or so, and apparently there's loads more that are yet to come, so it's pretty promising after... I mean, they've been getting back in the swing of things, but from like 2013 through 2015, it was a pretty dire situation in the dojo, and it seems like it's been doing pretty well. And and you know that the two of them really meshed pretty well with like the other rookies. I mean, Okuda was able to look like a monster. Yoshioka didn't get a whole lot of ring time over this time period, and he looked solid as well. And this was just a nice, good rookies match with, again, Mochizuki and Gamma 
on the same side, and they looked pretty excited to beat the crap out of a bunch of youngsters. So it was a good time. Yeah, I, I heard within the company that there's such an influx of young talent in Dojo Boys right now that it's kind of unclear who's next up because there's so many of them that they obviously don't want to put them all on the main cards at the same time. But supposedly there's a lot more coming, and hopefully we should see a lot more debuts this year from the Dragon Gate Dojo. I mean, if you just like look at it, I mean, the people who I'd put in the absolute like rookie tier would be OG Shiba because he's someone who had a, a really long layoff and basically has had to start from step one. Then you have these two guys. And then before that, you had like Strong Machine J and Daya. And then Kota Minonora was like the last one out of all those. So, like you have like these five guys with different trajectory and it's very interesting to see where they will go over the next few years. And it's kind of interesting that it's happening at a time like this where we, we're now seeing a Yoshino, but these these Generation 1 guys are getting towards the end of their career. So it's coming at an ample time, I feel like. Yes, Mike, but there is someone that was in this match that has been around for a while and has showed no signs of slowing down. And over the weekend, you and I ruffled some feathers uh, when we bestowed an accolade onto this person. And I will read the quote from Mike Spears' Twitter account, at Fujiheya verbatim. And this was this was still January 16th in the Western world. It just happened to be the 17th in Japan, uh, which is why Mike tweeted this. I can now officially say that Masaki Mochizuki is the greatest 50-plus-year-old wrestler in history. This had six replies, five retweets, 46 likes, and a number of screenshot coward replies. Mike, before... I dive into this. I need more context. What are you saying when you say he is the greatest 50-plus-year-old wrestler in history? Is this he is the the best wrestler at the age of 50 ever or that he is uh, the work he has done up to this point? He has had the strongest 50 years of anybody in wrestling. Can you define this a little bit more for me? Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm, I, and I'll use this as a chance to dunk on the cowards here uh so when i say masaki mochizuki is the greatest 50 plus year old wrestler in history i'm talking about actively in his 50s so i'm not talking about years zero through 49 i'm talking about entering their 50s the output that they're putting out right now on a consistent basis i emphasize consistent basis get out of here with saying like yuki shikawa when he's just going to go and hug people on the mat and have like two matches in Canada that people care about. Get out of here with your random lucha maestros who will just grab a hold or do junkyard brawling. I'm talking about a guy who has not changed their ring style from their 40s to their 50s and have not had any sort of degradation in their match quality, their physical ability, or the mindset. So that's what that's how I said that. With this, I fully believe it. I think if you're someone who is being a dork and just saying like, oh, I saw him in WAR and Battle Arts and that's all I saw of him, then I think he's just kind of just that. That was 25 fucking years ago. Are you the same person that you were 25 years ago? No. Do you judge Ric Flair on the matches he had in the early 70s when you were talking about his overall overall of uh, matches? No, you don't. Do you talk about... Kazuchika Okada when he was teaming with Ultimo before he went 
on Excursion and TNA about who he was as any sort of wrestler. No, I'm talking about who he is now. So I completely agree. And we've we've said it to death that I think you and I both agree that at worst, Masaki Mochizuki is one of the 10 greatest professional wrestlers to ever live. And while it sounds like an absurd hot take to some, and even some that have a clue, there are some people don't get that, which is fine. The point of this is I, I, I don't care if I come away from this argument winning, but there are people that dismissed this like it was the most egregious claim possible that quite honestly really got under my skin. And had I not had a Black Keys concert to go to that night, I would have been very annoyed for the entire evening because there is a dismissal about this idea that Dragon Gate uh, has produced greatness that I I mean, it has followed the company since its inception, but has particularly bothered me since 2015, 2016, when the Pro Wrestling Only Forum uh, began to do their Greatest Wrestler Ever project. And I saw the immediate dismissal of any Dragon Gate talent, whether it was warranted or not. It seemed like I was the only person active on that forum, with the exception of maybe Chad Campbell, who is a lovely human being. And my understanding is a loyal listener. Hey, Chad, how you doing? Um, it, there was such a dismissal of anybody in the Dragon system that they had done anything worthwhile in professional wrestling. And then you talk to these people that are dismissing them, and they have no receipts. They have nothing to bring to the table. They are, well, you know, I saw I saw one match on a Schneider comp in 2006, and, well, Rob Naylor likes these guys, so they can't be that good. And there's a ton of bullshit that surrounds this company that— I I learned to de- I've learned to deal with quite honestly I kind of like it I like that Dragon Gate can exist in its own little bubble but when we are now talking about the grand scheme of things this is a company that has operated at arguably the number two company in Japan for 15 years and has been a prominent figure in the Japanese wrestling landscape since its inception 20 years ago so we can't just dismiss all of the names that have come through the system all of the influence that has been brought on by this company. It can no longer be ignored. And the idea that people want to eye roll or to simply brush off the fact that this company has been such a prominent figure of the Japanese wrestling landscape for so long is absurd to me. And it's upsetting because it's done by, again, by dorks who want to pimp Yuki Ishikawa matches. And here's the thing. I like Yuki Ishikawa. I have no issue with him. I want to watch him and Timothy Thatcher from WXW. I have no interest in that. But if you want to show me a young Yuki Ishikawa, a 1996 Yuki Ishikawa, I'll watch it. I might not love it as much as you, but I at least understand that there's greatness there. And for a lot of these guys that I'm about to list, I understand that there's greatness there, even if it's not my cup of tea. And the issue is not that the Dragon Gate style is not universally loved. It is the immediate dismissal that they've done anything that has granted them some sort of legacy in this landscape. So Masaki Mochizuki turned 50 on January 17th. And, and I have to kind of balance the perspectives of what Mike was saying, but also looking at this from a historical perspective of Mochizuki's career greatness. And I've just got a few names here that I want to rattle off and get your takes on them. First name being Yuji Nagata, who turned 50 in April of 2018. And I love Yuji Nagata. I think he's the man. He's got some of my favorite matches of all time. But Nagata, since 2018, has not exactly done anything worthwhile of being mentioned in this category. And I also think Mochizuki's career output is twice as good as Nagata's career output. And I say that as someone that likes Nagata. Do you think I'm that far off in that opinion? 
Oh, not at all. I think that with how Bushi Road is towards their older wrestlers, he basically has been put on ice. I think that he had a really nice kind of thing where if his final G1, I thought that was pretty cool. I liked his GHC stuff when he was in his 40s. But if you're looking at Yuki Nagata at age 50 versus Misaki Mochizuki, there's no comparison because Misaki Mochizuki is going full blast every night and has wrestled more matches than basically anyone in Japan over the last three years, with the exception of some other Dragon Gate guys. I completely agree. Next name, next name on the list is Yoshiaki Fujiwara. Yoshiaki Fujiwara is currently 70 years old. He turned 50 in April 1999. I was two months old when Fujiwara turned 50. And here's the thing. I love Yoshiaki Fujiwara. When I voted in the Greatest Wrestler Ever project in the Pro Wrestling Only forums, Fujiwara was my 29. Now, he might fall back to 40 with the way that not only certain wrestlers have progressed and moved up my list, but also just in the way that my taste has shifted since then. But I can't dismiss Fujiwara's greatness. He is undeniably great. But if we're looking at his output since 1999, Cage Match only has one recommendation, and that is the Tenru Project Retirement Show, which was universally pimped as a fun show but not a great show, and it's a a three-and-a-quarter star match, according to Dave Meltzer. And if you want to expand outside of that and look on the Ditch Archives, which I I, the Ditch Archives are what they sound like. It's an archive of of Japanese wrestling— since 1999, there are eight Fujiwara recommendations, and most of those are Tenru Project matches, or they are legend eight-mans that are, are put up there simply for historical perspectives to see these guys who were once great now looking like old, frail human beings. I love Fujiwara. I think his run in 1987 is as good as it gets. It's a lot of what I look for in professional wrestlers. I think his stuff with Super Tiger in 1984 is brilliant. I think it's so far ahead of his time. But if we're talking about Yushiaki Fujiwara when he turned 50, if you think that is comparable to the output of Masaki Mochizuki, I'm sorry, but you are factually incorrect on this one. I do not enjoy watching Fujiwara wrestle in, in a contemporary setting. It makes me sad. He's an old man. He's 70 years old. He can barely do anything now, and he's been barely able to do anything for the past 20 years. And if you're pimping him out of irony, if you really think in this current state that Yoshiaki Fujiwara is a better wrestler than Kazuchika Okada or Masaki Mochizuki, then fucking have fun with your memes. I don't care, but I have no interest in having any legitimate discourse with you because I think that's so patently absurd. Yeah, no, you, you put it in better terms than I can. You know, he's just, when you look at who wrestled best after they turned 50, there's nothing to tell me that Masaki Mochizuki is going to break down to the degree that Yoshiaki Fujiwara has broken down since he's turned 50. And if you want to talk about output before, okay, that's an interesting conversation, and that's one I'll entertain. But I just hand-wave anyone who's trying to say that Yoshiaki Fujiwara has done anything other than, like, oh, look at these veterans, or, oh, this Tenryu retirement show is a whole lot of fun, and he was in a fun match there, you know? Like, it's just, it, it's, it's... Yes, and, and Fujiwara's career output was largely built off of a few great matches along the way, I think more so than... Con- Consistency. I don't look at Fujiwara as someone that month in, month out brought it on a consistent basis. He just happens to peak absurdly high in a few different areas. Yeah, no, I think that's an entirely fair statement.
Yeah, so I've got a few more here. Just just indulge me for a second because I got going with this, and now I'm locked in on just the, the names I compiled. One of the ones that I don't have as strong of a case for or against is Negro Casas, which uh, Bo's Johnny on Twitter who— Oh, I got one. Okay, well, so so Bo's Johnny is a great dude. Followed him for a long time. Um, he mentioned, he says, you know, Negro Casas is really— the the better example than Yuki Ishikawa, which I agree with on a number of levels. Casas mm-hmm. is someone who I just don't enjoy that style, but I also understand that there is a larger bubble of people, more so than just anime avatars, that still look at him as a great wrestler. Now, even at his peak, I'm not a huge fan of it, but that's a style thing. But I can at least recognize that argument. Now, I don't see it, but I recognize it, and I don't have a ton to say for Casas, but Mike, it sounds like you do. So, actually, when you're going to list names to me, Casas is the one person that would probably be my number two, to be honest. I think that Negro Casas has done tremendous stuff into his 50s, and I believe he's 60 now, and I think he had a very strong decade. But I think the thing that you, when people bring up Negro Casas, they're disregarding the fact of the CML house style and the matches that Casas, as someone with his tenure and prestige, decides to do because Ultimo Guerrero, whoever in CMLL, who's running it these days, I think it's Paco Lonzo's nephew. Whoever is in charge there is basically okay with him taking off for the, with the exception of 10 matches a year. Like, he's had some great apuestas. He's been great. I think out of the over 50 category, the conversation is either going to be Mochizuki and Casas in 15 years. That's going to be the conversation I think we're having. But the thing is, is that you, if you watch some of the Arena Mexico shows that Negro Casas has been on, and especially lately, but if you looked at how they set up their year, he has four or five matches of note a year. Whereas Misaki Mochizuki, in this eight-man throwaway match on Cork and Hall, had a three-and-a-half-star match with two literal rookies. He's going out, all out, all night. He does it across Japan. Because something we didn't mention earlier, he is now the GHC Tag Team Champion. So he's doing this at age 50 and not taking off a night, still having a strenuous schedule, whereas Negro Casas, if you're going to talk about anyone of that style, he is the best example you give me because he can go outside the style. He had a very fun Apuestas match with Sam Adonis, and I think it was actually on New Year's Day 2019. So I think that Negro Casas is a tremendous wrestler. I think he's a tremendous older wrestler as well, but you can't stack up what we've seen from Masaki Mochizuki and how you're going to be able to project Masaki Mochizuki out because of his consistency and him not taking nights off versus Negro Casas, the Lucha style, how CML is presented. And maybe it's something that Negro Casas can go, and if he did more indie shows that may tape, I would be wrong about this. But I also have seen the amount of injuries that Negro Casas has had in recent years, which necessitates him not going full bore like this. Masaki Mochizuki doesn't has... No sense of, like, big injury history. He is someone who at age 50, I hate using the baseball phrase, best shape of his career, but <laughs> I don't see a noticeable difference between him right now and to an M2K Masaki Mochizuki 20 years ago. Do you see a big physical difference? He might actually be in better shape then, or now than he is then. It's frightening. I, I think he is, because if you look at, like, 2000, 2001 Mochizuki, there's still like almost like baby fat to him. Like he's a little bit bigger and there was no fat on that man's body currently. Right. Yeah. And Casas is probably the person that if I was going to make my top three over 50 list, I think that he is your argument here. I think he has a much more legitimate argument 
than Fujiwara, than Ishikawa. I think that he probably, if you want to come with me with an argument about New York Casas, I can see your argument. I can tell you doing an argument of mostly good faith, whereas a lot of these ones, you're just kidding yourself. Yeah, a few more names on the list. Dick Togo turned 50 last year. Dick Togo somebody I love, one of my personal favorites of all time. Dick Togo is also somebody that is pimped constantly by people that don't like Dragon Gate or say they don't like Dragon Gate, which quite frankly confuses the shit out of me. I don't understand how Segunda Keda can have a complete and accurate Dick Togo list and then they can completely blow off the Dragon Gate house style. It's very strange to me. Dick Togo was a great wrestler up until about 2011. Now he's fine. I don't remember the last great Dick Togo match I saw. He's someone that I don't think uh, is is relevant in the stratosphere of even 50-plus talent we're talking about because I think the best work of his career was done uh, in prior de- decades. Jushin Thunder Liger is 55. We just saw him retire at the, the beginning of this month. You take the last five years of Liger's career, uh, I think Mochizuki's output over the last five years, and I think even five years into the future, is going to uh, destroy Liger's output. And, I, and I'm someone that was a big fan of post-prime Liger. I like the work he did in Noah a lot. I love the match he had with Ata in 2016. But let's be real. Mochizuki's working match of the year contender pace on a on a quarterly basis. It seems like every single year, Mochizuki is in my top 10 in some way, shape, or form. For his career, I have 15 years of Masaki Mochizuki's career where he has at least one four-and-a-half-star match, at least one, and oftentimes he's peaking higher than that. Quite honestly, if I had to submit my greatest wrestler ever list again, and I had this in 2016, and I would have it again, I would double down on it. I think historically, Masaki Mochizuki is a better wrestler than Jushin Thunder Liger was. Now, Liger obviously has the influence in the character, and there is a certain iconic status that Liger has that Mochizuki, for a number of reasons, will not. But if we're talking simply in-ring output, Mochizuki has the better case. And I firmly believe that. I firmly believe he is a better wrestler than Jushin Thunder Liger. And I firmly believe, especially as we get up in age, but historically as well, that he is a better wrestler than Minoru Suzuki, which was another name that I saw pipped out there. Minoru Suzuki take night, takes nights off. Minoru Suzuki straight up has bad matches in big spots. Minoru Suzuki is someone that for the longest time we were wondering, God, what if a promotion just got around this guy just and got him away from Toru Yano and let him just run with it? What if Minoru Suzuki had that platform? And then we saw him have that platform in Pro Wrestling Noah, and quite honestly, he bombed. I thought he had a ton of bad matches. I, the idea that Minoru Suzuki is looked at on lane than Mochizuki is upsetting to me, quite honestly, because Minoru Suzuki's great, but... Minoru Suzuki has the AJ Styles match and a few Okada matches and a few Tanahashi matches, and Mochizuki has doubled that. And it's just, people just don't seem to understand that, and it's it's frustrating. Am I off base in Togo Liger? Uh, so, Togo, I think that Togo, the big thing that's hurting Togo is, I think you're right, his best matches were in the 90s. I think since then, he's always been proficient, and maybe it's an opportunity and exposure that's hampering this kind of argument for him. Maybe, but I mean, he still went to go work in the United States, and he had a fun match with Zack Sabre Jr., but not a match that I'm going to be saying, look at this 55-year-old wrestler, or 53-at-the-time-year-old wrestler doing that there. Uh, Liger is interesting, just because of... Liger would be the other person, because Minoru Suzuki is shot. Minoru Suzuki is someone that is all mystique now. 
I'll say that. I think he's someone that had a legendary career and is as influential in his style of wrestling as Jushin Thunder Liger is, particularly in his style of wrestling. But Minoru Suzuki, as you said, he is someone that has has a lot more bad matches than truly great matches nowadays. And I think that's also them kind of hiding the shape of Minoru Suzuki in 2020. Uh, Liger, though, is interesting because Liger will, will have wrestled five years since he's just retired. And he's had a strong output. Like his his New Japan stuff over the last five years, you know, he's not been featured. And maybe it's a little bit of the Yuki Nagata syndrome of how they focus things. And do we hold it against the wrestler if they're at a certain age so the company takes them out of the spotlight and has them mostly in the inconsequential stuff? No, but at the same time, it's a statement that a company like Dragon Gate gave Minoru, gave Masaki Mochizuki a title run at 48. Gave him a title match in what was my match of the year last year in Dragon Gate at 49. That he was someone that... and. And, and just to say, like, I guess Liger kind of is someone that has had, like, the fun matches and has had very good matches, but he has not had the exceptional matches over the last five years. Maybe that's where I would say, whereas I have a full expectation that we could forecast out that Masaki Mochizuki will be having this style of matches at 55. But, I mean, when you talk to wrestlers, and I've talked to a couple wrestlers about Masaki Mochizuki, and maybe it's... And this might go back to like just general exposure and the general thought process of people versus the Dragon system. If you're going to dismiss out of hand Dragon Gate, given what wrestlers have said about working that system, what wrestlers have said specifically about Misaki Mochizuki, then you just are working on your, your preconceived bias and you, your opinion is set, so why do I bother talking to you? And I think that's what it is, is that people have their biases in their own echo chambers, and it's just, why bother? Because they're not going to engage this conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. I've got... I was going to say, because they're not going to engage... I've got one con- more name on the... Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was yeah. going to say, just because they don't engage this conversation in any bit of good faith. So why even bother having an, a constructive conversation about it? Because they're obviously so set in their ways that they're not even allowed for the idea of, oh, this one guy who's in a promotion that... I already have a preconceived notion with might be better than my guy who goes and does uh, junkyard brawls. Yes. So I've got one more name on the list. Final name on the list is Janishiro Tenru. And Tenru is someone that was in such rough shape at the end of his career that I think we forget that he actually has a few years of 50 plus work. That is very, very good. Uh, Tenru will be 70 in February. So he turned uh, 50 in 2000 and realistically, he's really, really good up until 2006. He's got a great 2000, a great 2001. He's got some really high profile matches in 2002 In 2004. He has a great G1 climax. And then in 2005 and 2006, he starts working with Dragon Gate 
and is having great matches. And I think those are, weirdly enough, the last great matches of Tenru's career. Tenru is also the only person I've named that I truly think is a better all-time wrestler than Masaki Mochizuki. Tenru is a guy who is three to five. Mochizuki is a guy that is probably five to seven, five to nine on my all-time list. But Tenru is the name that it sounds like an easy dismissal because he was so bad towards the end of his career. But you forget that he actually has a few years where he's a really solid 50-plus wrestler. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I also think that does those years pre-physical breakdown, an utter physical breakdown, where eventually after Dragon Gate, he started doing hustle shows because he knew that he could do those shows and make money and not be hurt. Do you disregard those very bad end of his 50s for those admittedly very strong 50 to 53 years i think that's your big i think that's going to be your big thing here because tenru definitely is probably a top 10 wrestler of all time i'm not gonna i i completely agree with that argument and i think that's something that's that's valid you have valid reasoning there but you cannot dismiss how bad those last years are when he when pretty much because you're when you're talking about over 50 you're going to talk about Tenryu is someone who turned 70 this year that for his last 15 years of his career, three or four of them were legitimately good. Would you say case three or four? Uh, yeah, something like that. Then the, the, re- the uh, remaining 11 were sad, incredibly sad. So yes, I don't think you can put someone up there for three good years when the remainder of the years were seeing someone who really shouldn't have been wrestling. That was still wrestling. And someone who went to hustle, a comedy promotion that paid a lot of money because he saw a name cachet and then proceeded to have some of the worst matches in Hustle. Yes. So that is that is the 50-plus wrestler debate that I felt like was a necessary conversation to have. It went very long. We still have a lot to cover. Mike, <laughs> would you like to move on to the next match, or do you have anything more to say about this topic? No. No, I think we came at it like this. Anyone who says Negro Navarro in this conversation is a complete putz. That's it. Oh uh, yeah, no, fu- fuck off with it. it, it Negro Casas is the only luchador, unless unless I'm forgetting someone that isn't uh, some fucking bullshit grappling artist that I have no interest in watching. Negro Casas is the only one that I can seriously consider. And again, he's someone that I, I just don't style. But all I'm asking is that you can say the same thing about Mochizuki, which I think people with a clue can do, but they're, you know, uh, people hiding behind anime avatars can't. I'm sorry. So, sorry, I sound like fucking Ricky Gervais right now. <laughs> Fuck. Anyways, but, next match. Yeah, yeah. the other name I was going to say, just because it popped in my head, Atlantis in the last few years was having a very good 50s career, but also was very protected. So that's another luchador, but I think that's... I also think Atlantis is an... Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I, I, Atlantis is an awful wrestler, in my opinion. That one <laughs> I will dig my heels in on. But anyways, go ahead. All right. So match five was the first three-way match of the... Three-way all-out war. So we had a Torimon team of Dragon Kid and Ryo Saito, the most charming tag team of Kai and Strong Machine J, versus two-thirds of the current tri- Triangle Gate champions and Takashi Yoshida and Hio. It was a double fall as Ryo Saito had a- snuck in a pinfall when uh, Super Strong Machine J was doing the Winchigatame Devil Windmill Suplex. So two winners, one loser. Not a strong match, but at least it set up a match coming up next month. Yeah, I, I don't have a ton to add. I thought this was the least eventful match on the uh, on the card. Um, I do like the 
I do like the teams here. I like Kid and Saito. I like Strong Machine J and Kai, and Hayo and Yoshida uh, certainly exist, but I don't have a ton to say on this. And, and we'll get into what the match on the 2-7 show will be when we break down what we know for that card. Semi-main event was a was a trios match with the uh, with the Torimon team of Nuriki Doi, Kiki Horiguchi, and Kagatora versus, I guess with the exception of BB Hulk, this would be the R.E.D. top team of Ada, Bigar, Shimizu, and Kaido Ishida. Shimizu continues his losing streak as he lost to the Dreamgate champion Nuruki Doi in 9 minutes and 20 seconds with a Bakatari sliding kick. And I thought this was just a blast. I I love Kaido Ishida as a heel. He's taken to it like a fish to water. It's been better than any expectation I had. And then Doi in this face run is going to be a real interesting story just because of how how much like he's somewhat got the crowd connection back that he was getting out of his face turn. And, you know, as someone who's very low on his first Dreamgate run, I'm kind of excited to see where it's going to go from here. Yeah, I love this match. I said it in my review, and, and not to dive back into discourse on the Dragon Gate, but this is one of those matches, and it's a point made by been made by a few people, but if this match happens on any other promotion on Earth, it becomes buzzworthy. And I don't even think that is a diss at Dragon Gate, or that's because people fade the company. It's just because this is the working standard, quite honestly. It's because this is the level of expectation that... Uh, so many people have when it comes to Dragon Gate now, so it's it's easy to look past this match as just another Dragon Gate match. When in reality, if this happened anywhere else, people would be losing their minds. Uh, I'm all for this. I love the Shimizu Eita Ashita trio and the Doi Horiguchi Kagatora trio. To my knowledge, it's the first time those three have been on the same sides of a six-man tag match. Uh, Doi and Horiguchi teamed uh, both in two-on-two and in multi-man matches uh, during their Muscle Outlaws days, and then a little bit in Blood Warriors. But adding Kagator to the mix, it is an exciting team that feels very new, feels very fresh, and that is one of the perks of this Generational Warfare uh, storyline. I gave this four stars. Yeah, I thought this was a great sprint, and we got to see a lot of new combinations that were pretty interesting. So that led us to Doi putting out an open challenge for his first Dreamgate defense KZ answered it, and that will be the main event of the Corkin Show on the 7th. I feel like we can just kind of write in Sharpie now KZ Dreamgate Challenge in February because this is the third straight year he's had one here. And I'm, I'm all for it. As long as he continues to deliver great matches, uh, he can challenge for the Dreamgate as many times as he wants. Totally. So main event was to decide the 48th Open, the Twin Gate Champion, and that was between the True born top team of Yamato and Benkei versus the R.E.D. team of B.B. Hulk and Kazuma Sakamoto. So the two most recent Twin Gate champions are on opposite teams here. B.B. Hulk got the win in 21 minutes, 58 seconds after a really brutal looking first flash into the half uh, package pile driver. And they became the 48th champion team. Uh, Case, you have the floor here because I think you thought even more strongly of this match than I did. I was just delighted that this was the match we got because when I, when the brackets came out, this seemed like the obvious conclusion of the tournament. Like we've been saying all along, it's Yamato and Ben K, the two biggest stars of the Trueborn, And then it's the new RED team with the fresh heel unit. Uh, but even the KZ Daya match uh, against Hulk and Sakamoto, I wasn't sure who the winner was going to be. And then RED prevails. And then I think, well, Yoshino and Yokosuka could easily headline this Cork and Hall. I mean, it it would make sense, I guess, in that regard, even though the hotter match feels like Ben K and Yamato. 
sure enough, it ends up being the Trueborn team. And this was uh, just one of those epics. I think this was a heightened version of the Big E uh, Osaka match against Binkei and Yamada, where we had interference, we had chair spots, there were tons of near falls. This just happened in Cork and Hall, and I think with Sakamoto and Hulk, it felt a little fresher. It felt like there was a little bit more uh, that these teams could do with one another. And I was shocked by the finish just because in the lore of Dragon Gate, they tend to cut their heel units off before they can really hit the ground running. Um, And I look at this RED as almost a reset. I feel like even though it is the same units, same colors, only the addition is BB Hulk, for the purposes of this storyline, I almost feel like they had to reset a little bit, and it wouldn't have shocked me at all if Ben K and Yamato had won. It actually would have felt like a very Dragon Gate thing to do, given that Mad Blanky lost on their first night. Uh, Blood Warriors had some issues out of the gates. It's a it's a bit of a constant with them, with the exception of Berserk, in which they said, "No, we're giving you guys all the titles." Uh, in this in this version, I I would have not been shocked to see them lose, but instead, Hulk and Sakamoto are victorious. I thought this was a great match. I went four and a half on it. It is the Dragon Gate match of the year as of right now in my mind. Uh, a must-watch match, in my opinion, essential viewing. Just a tremendous finishing stretch. It was... I, I can't believe Cosmo Sakamoto is having four and a half star Dragon Gate matches and the fact that he's working so well with Ben K and Yamato. But I am, I am so for it. I think it is such a lovely addition... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's something that's pretty remarkable when we talk about them cutting the uh, cutting the heel units off at the heels right now. At, as of today, the uh, heels have three of the four titles. The Dream Gate, of course, is Naruki Doi. The True Born Army, even though they have more wins than anyone else, and the, uh, just general matches, they are the only ones without titles. Uh, this was something that I think played into the war very well. Because you had these moments that, like, the brawls on the outside wasn't just, like, heels beating down on the babyface team. It was both sides going in and at it. There was a referee bump that worked perfectly into the flow of the match where they were able to say, oh, no, Yagi ran in for because he wasn't the referee of this match. It was Mr. Nakagawa. And after a double Ragnarok, they weren't able to get a pin on it when the Ragnarok is one of the most protective moves in Dragon Gate because... Yagi had to run in and do it, so it was the late count, and that worked really, really well. And it said that I think it's really set the tone for like this RED version three, almost I would say. And it's something that it gives them all a bit of stakes. It lets you know that Hulk's title or Hulk's turn is very effective. It's going to be something now that the Trueborn Army is going to be digging themselves out of this hole. And I think that was a very smart way of doing it. And you know, after having Berserk fade away and then having the disaster of Antios and then what R.E.D. was after Pack left, it was nice to now know that this heel team is a true heel team. And currently, I would argue they are the top un- the top side in the war so far. Yeah, I would completely agree. And I think that's probably the best way to finish talking about Corkin. It will remain up on the network until the 22nd, so I still have time to catch all of this. And we have three more shows for dragon gate this month that will be on the network uh i think really because of how the kobe sembo hall shows are set up case i'm just going to run down the cards real quick and then i'll ask for your thoughts on them if that's okay with you yeah please do it all right so this is a double header this is their first shows in their hometown for 2020 
It the first show is on the 25th. It is live on the network. It has a uh, 17:45 start uh, Japanese Standard Time, so that should be around 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and of course adjust your time zone accordingly. They're bringing back their six-man uh, January tournament. They've been doing this for a couple of years now. It's kind of inconsequential, but it was usually all they did in January. The first show is, starts off with a Dragon Gate versus Torimon tag team match where we get that Lee and Santa Maria tag team back together as they will be facing Ryo Saito and Yuzushi Kanda, an unaffiliated match with uh, Keisuke Okuda and Punch Hominaga versus Misaki Mochizuki and Martin Kirby. A Torimon versus RED singles match, which I think is going to be kind of interesting, of Kakatora versus Kazuma Sakamoto, a rare, very rare uh, tag team match, Torimon versus Red, with Speed Muscle getting back together for the night against BB Hulk and Takashi Yoshida. So that's almost like Speed uh, World 1 versus uh, New Hazard right there. And then the semi main event is the first round match in the Yashishanaki, I think I didn't butcher that, cup, where it is a six man tag team tournament. Torimon versus Dragon Gate, where we have the old Do Fixer team of Dragon Kid, Susumi Okoska, and Kinki Horiguchi versus uh, kind of like the uh, big rookie team, if you even want to call it that, of Binkei, Strong Machine J, and Dragon Daya. The other first round match is the main event. It is the what seems to be the RED top trio of Ada, Big R Shimizu, and Kaido Shida versus. People from different uh, eras of Tri-Vanguard, where you have Yamato and Kai with KZ. They, the winners of those two matches will be go on to the 26th, where the winner of the uh, former Fixer and Rookies match will go against the RED team of Hulk, Yoshida, and Kazuma Sakamoto. And then the, uh, the former Tri-Vanguard members versus the RED top team will be going up against Speed Muscle and Ryo Saito. So... Kind of a, I don't want to say dire Kobe Sumbo Hall shows, but this is definitely a step back from the first week of shows. Yeah, this looks like, like one of those house shows that uh, even I will be cherry picking through because I am not a completist. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm not a completist. I don't feel the need to watch shows that don't look appealing. And this is a show that does not look appealing, with the exception of match six, the DK Susumu Horiguchi versus Ben K Strong Machine Chief in Dragon Dia match. That one I will be watching. That looks excellent. Everything else, uh, man, it's going to depend on time and motivation. This does not look like a fun set of shows. Uh, I'm going to call a spade a spade here. You're going to wait until I, the complete psychopath I am, watch these shows and tell you which matches are worth watching, aren't you? Hey, that sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> I, 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 I remember telling you I was going to take a step back from these uh, Kobe House shows, but, you know, I know myself better than that, knowing that I will watch these shows. So that's it for Dragon Gate. <laughs> I, I mean, I like doing lists. I like being a completionist, but I put myself through terrible things. But that's it for Dragon Gate Proper's January 2020. We do have one last show that will be happening in January. It will be at Corken Hall, and it is the Torimon reunion show. This show will have English commentary. It will be Jay Church along with uh, Larry Dallas. They will be there for the next week. And I'm going to, we only have one now, one match announced so far. It's Ryo Saito versus Ginky Horiguchi, 
But we do kind of have a roster for the show. Basically, it's going to be the roster members that are around under their previous gimmicks. So, Naruki Doi will pick up the baseball bat and be second Doi. Uh, Don Fuji will be a kleptomaniac. Uh, trying to think of other like really noticeable changes. Oh, Yoshino will be an Italian sexy Tarzan. But Case, I did some research last night, and I didn't want this to go to waste. Do you want to hear who the outsiders are for this match? I know you already have the list, but do you want me to run down this list of... No, give, give them to me. I'd love to hear them. All right. This shouldn't be a surprise. The first one is Toru Awashi, currently in DDT. You know, probably the most consistent member on this list so far. Then we get Henry the Third Sugawara. Of course, that's Takuya Sugawara, and he's in 0-1. Koichiro Arai. So it looks like we're going to get some part of the fake Arai brothers back. Probably better known to most listeners as Taro Nohashi. He does the same gimmick that... I'm blanking on his name. I can't. Jinsei Sensaki does an impro, but kind of like a mini version of it. He worked. Uh, he's worked Chikara. Other person that's I'm actually really excited to see is Masahiro Takanashi. He was someone that is in DDT. He is a a uh, Torimon gym guy, but he didn't graduate. But he went to DDT. He most recently has been like teaming with Chris Brooks. He has the Basara champion, and he is a part of. He's one of the leaders in Joe Lance's favorite promotion Gato Move. Uh, we have Takeshi Minamino, who's been mostly in K-Dojo and 2AW. Kenjiro Matsuyama, who showed up at... I forget which show, but he did one of the the Battle Royals because someone was hurt. And then we're getting into some really weird stuff, Case. We have Amigo Suzuki, who, for a while, they said he was Hiromi Horiguchi. I think that was his... Or he might have been a Rai brother. Anyways... He's been Amigo Suzuki for a long time. He used to come up from Mexico with uh, Skyda for Chikara. But but he is pretty much the only secret-based regular on the show. We have Chongo. We have Tsubo Genjin, who are two guys who are mostly inactive. One of them, Genjin, does work GPS, which is a Hiroshima-based promotion group. But the big name on these lists, Hisamaru Tajima, the fabled Torimon ex-ace who didn't make it who disappeared for a long time and has been mostly inactive since then and we're having a reunion of m2k and italian connection it's going to be milanito collection at not milano so case that's a bunch of guys that's a bunch of guys and this is going to be a very interesting show i'm really not sure, and it's unfortunate that we don't have the the full card. I don't know when we're going to get it, and Mike and I are going to play it by ear because I think we both want to do an episode dedicated to Torimon and not only the history of it, but how we got to this show. But because we don't have the full card as of now when we're recording, which is January 20th, we don't know when all of that's going to shake out. So maybe during the review we do a big Torimon show. We're not sure just yet. But this is a bizarre collection of names, and I mean, it's cool. It's a it's a reunion show that the Dragon System has obviously never done before. Uh, it it's so strange to think that this is happening. It feels very much like an Ultimo Vanity project. But uh, you win some, you lose some. That's just bound to happen at some point. Th- this will be interesting for me, just because you know I'm obviously very familiar with Toriyuman and T2P and Dragon Gate. 
but I don't have a ton of knowledge on Toriumon X. My Toriumon X mindset goes to Taiji Ishimori, who is not on this show. It's a shame he's not on the show. It would have been very cool if they were able to get him, but, you know, he's doing big things with New Japan. Uh, so there's, you know, these secret base guys and the Toriumon X workers and these low-level uh, sleaze indie guys. I... Even I am very unfamiliar with their history. This has always been something that Mike has been a little bit more into than I have. So I'm very interested to see uh, this show and not only this show, but who's in the audience for this show, whether it's uh, it feels like an old school Torimon show or if it's the same people that were just at this January Corkin show that are going to be attending. I have no clue how this show is going to uh, shape out. All I know is that Larry Dallas and Drangit J are doing commentary for it. J has obviously spent his entire life preparing for this moment, and Larry Dallas knows nothing about Toribon. And I don't say that to roast Larry Dallas. He's been very public about that, and I am just very entertained to see how this show comes across because he and Jay were a really fun team on the December Corkin Hall show. I think this will play right into their strengths because it's going to be wacky. There's going to be some commentary or some comedy rather. And I think Larry Dallas is going to be able to do very well in this environment, whether he understands what's happening or not. <laughs> I made a tweet about this last night when I found out about this list. I'm really excited for Jay explaining Los Alceros Happinesis to, to Larry. Like that's going to be my, my one moment I'm dreaming about on this show is when Takashi Minamino comes out and if he comes out in the Salsero's gear, and Jay has to explain that to to uh, Larry and keep it under some form of kayfabe, that's what I'm really looking forward to here. But you raised a really important point here that I wanted to touch on, and luckily you brought it up before I did, and that's going to be the crowd. They announced today that all reserved seating for the show have been sold out, and standing room only is going to be available the day of the show. I want to propose something to you, Case. Okay. And that is... And that is... Tokyo Korokans for a while in Dragon Gate have not been selling out. I think the last sellout was PAX title win, if I'm right. What happens if this show sells out and there seems to be a little bit of demand or... Uh, momentum, I guess, for lack of better words. And we both intimately know how big the Dragon Gate roster is right now. It's probably the largest it's ever been in its history. Can you see, and this is another bounce in my head, can you see going forward more of these shows and maybe, I don't want to say a split because that's obviously not going to happen, but can you see maybe quarterly Torimon shows alongside the regularly touring Dragon Gate guys? Or do you think that if this is a nice sellout, this will be what ECW should have been, they'll all do like a nice farewell and then they'll seal Torimon forever? I look at this as a one-off. I just don't, I don't know with the collection of names you just listed, how they would expect to draw houses. I mean, obviously they would have Ultimo and that touring brand, I guess. I mean, if you wanted to, do the reunion tour and hit Kaito and hit Kobe and hit, you know, Hiroshima, you know, and do this once. But I don't see how Amigo Suzuki is going to be a, a sustainable draw for your promotion. And I would be very disappointed if we started seeing an influx of Torimon shows. I, that, that is, this is something so far in the past. It is exactly 
the opposite of where most wrestling is headed now, where I think finally we're seeing new voices and new names and we're starting to look into the future instead of focusing on what was relevant in 1999. And I would be so disappointed if Toriumon uh, continued in some way after the show, because I really don't think that's necessary. I think I, at least I would hope I would pray that some of the Drangate talent and some of the R.E.D. talent show up on this show and shoot some sort of angle to hopefully get people to the February February Corkin, which I don't think will have an issue selling tickets. We'll talk about that in a second. But hopefully they can build crowds for Dragon Gate throughout the year because I think the reason this show is selling so well is that it's the first Toriyamon show in, in 16 years. I mean, if I was... Uh, you know, a, a native there, and, and I stopped following when Ultimo left, or they lost me in the Big Six, wherever they lost me. A Toriyamon show, at least a one-off, has my attention. I'm very intrigued by this show and what will come of it, but I, there doesn't need to be more. This doesn't need to be a, a separate brand. I don't want to see a split. It, it's, let's do one night of fun, and then let's move on with our lives. Okay, okay. I just wonder with, now they have Ultimo back, this is obviously gives him something to do gets him off the main card so maybe that was my ultimate motivation because something that we didn't mention earlier Ultimo wasn't on Corkin so you know he he's been in Mexico but that was just something that kind of popped in my head when I was putting together the run list this week so there's one more yeah oh go I'd, ahead I'd rather Ultimo uh do more tor- I, I'd rather Ultimo do more Torimon Mexico stuff if that was if that was the offshoot was every three months Ultimo takes a a, a plane of guys and and sends them off to Mexico for two weeks, and they work six-mans, that'd be great. But the idea of another uh, Dragon System promotion in Japan is not something that is appealing to me at all. Okay, that's fair. Um, I actually don't have this in the notes, but we'll get into I'll bring it up when we get to it. The last card that we have any information for is, of course, the February Corkin, which will be a week after this. We have three matches. Of course, we have the main event of the first Open the Dreamgate defense for Naruki Doi versus KZ. We have a open the triangle gate three-way match that was set up with the double pin where Diamante will be back. So we'll have the champion team of R.E.D., Takashi Yoshida, Diamante, and Hyo versus the Trueborn team of Strong Machine J, Yosuke Santa Maria, and Kisuke Akuda versus the... I'm trying to remember. They have teamed together. It's just been a really long time, and I always get my time frames wrong on this. But it's Ryo Saito... Dragon Kid and Kanichiro Rai. Well, they were the original Seki gun members. So, original Toribon Seki gun members and yes. the open the Triangle Gate 3A match. And then we have another 3A match, which is a team of the RED team of uh, Ada and BB Hulk going against the guys who Hulk backstabbed and Dragon Kid and, or not Dragon Kid, uh, with Yamato and Kai versus the Torimon Fable team. This was a big team for a while of Masato Yoshino and Shuji Kondo. So, Case, take it away. What are your thoughts on these three huge matches that are happening on the February Corkin? I can't remember a time, or I guess the last time, where a, a Dragon Gate Corkin Hall show had two title matches on it, and one of them being a Dream Gate. I mean, this is a huge show with major implications as we uh, quickly moved with the way that with the way at least my life is going right now. The way we quickly move towards not only Champion Gate but Dead or Alive. I think we're going to see the blueprints for those shows laid out here. Um, the Doi KZ match, I expect Doi to win, but uh, my God, what an exciting main event. I mean, that's going to be outstanding. Uh, the Triangle Gate match should be interesting. I see the champions retaining there. And then your your other announced match is a Shuji Kondo match with 
the biggest stars in the company in the same match. I mean, this is this is a loaded show. And I mean, if I was running things, I would be okay given the way Corkin was run in January to draw 1500. But this this should be a super no vacancy full house. I mean, this should be a maximum capacity crowd. And I, I would at least hope so. I think if it's not in the 1800 ballpark, then uh, some questions need to be asked. Yeah. And if they get two sellouts in two different weeks, with the exception of New Japan for obvious reasons, they will probably have the most successful several-week stretch in Tokyo that anyone has all year with combined attendance. And from there, I mean, you brought up the fact that it's, we're going to be going to Champion Gate. Champion Gate is just three weeks later. It's the 29th of February and the 1st of March. They Before these shows, we don't have the card yet. They have a doubleheader in Fukuoka and then a KBS Hall show. So it's pretty much full steam ahead for the schedule. I mean, really... The most downtime you will have is going to be March is going to have Memorial Gate, which is kind of a C-tier show and then like that. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I guess that's another reason why I wonder what the future of these Torimon reunions will be because it's already shaking up that Torimon is going to outsell this first Corican. But what happens if it outsells the second one? That's going to be a question that I think that we'll have to ask when that happens and again that will also have english commentary i believe it's still going to be j and ld there mike do you know why dragon gate is going to have such a good month at the box office in late january slash february why is that because they're the f- fucking second biggest company in japan that's why <laughs> yeah we didn't touch on this earlier but there has been now statistical empirical evidence that dragon gate is the second biggest company in japan guys just like get out of your old generation mindset just because your dads took you to All Japan Show and you took your sons to All Japan Show. Doesn't mean it's number two. Sorry. This show put me in a bad mood. I'm fucking frustrated with a lot of the discourse going on right now. I just I just can't take it. They're just I, I'm sick of people being factually incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Well let's end this on some gossip news, case before we go. Oh, I'd love to do it. What what do you have in the bag? So there is a promotion I want to talk about for a second. It's a promotion in Mexico that has had links to the Dragon System for a very long time. Shima wrestled there. The original class wrestled there. Uh, Aiden T-Hawk wrestled there. Currently, it is the home of one Shun Skywalker. As you all have been able to kind of find, figure out, uh, and I think we could probably say now, Case, uh, Shun's on a full excursion. He's going to be in Mexico at least for the next five to six months and it's been said not to expect Shun around in 2020. Incidentally case, you know who, you know who also showed up at IWRG yesterday? Who's that? Stronghearts. Hmm. So just kind of an interesting thing. Uh, you do know who was not on that show last night? Who, who was that? Shun Skywalker. (laughs) Oh, weird. Well, what a wild world this is. So, Keep your eye out for Shun. I know that there's been some talks about him doing stuff other than Mexico. Nothing that I'm aware of has been put pen to paper. Stronghearts are staying in North America pretty much until their return show in Japan on March 1st. So have you caught a lot of Shun in Mexico or the Stronghearts match that happened last night? I know it was streamed. That's what I'm asking. Uh, I caught the first Shun match in IWRG. That was a six-man on the January 12th IWRG show. 
I believe that is still out there. It's It was streamed on YouTube, and I believe the archive is still up. All we were told, and we found out when everybody else did, we had no uh, information previous to this, but when Cubs fan tweeted out that Shun Skywalker will be in IWRG for six months, uh, we that's when we learned that. Uh, we, we had a feeling he was going to go away for a little bit, but that was when it was confirmed. Um, and then, as, as Mike said, it, our understanding is at least there are steps in motion to get him uh, into the States at some point this year, uh, whether that be for big-time indie promotions or or showing up, uh, you know, carrying Ultimo's bags. We're not sure. I have no uh, idea how he's going to fit into the American indie scene if he does indeed show up here. But we know that there is an, at least an idea that he could be working in America this year. And it sounds like he has the paperwork to do so now, which was obviously uh, why he didn't make it or a WrestleMania weekend last year. Um, so I caught his first match uh, in IWRG. And then he also worked uh, on January 5th, a match in Toriumon, Mexico. It was him uh, Diamante of R.E.D. and Ultimo Dragon, and they uh, wrestled Blue Panther Jr. Uh, and two other luchadors that I was not familiar with. Um, I don't believe that has made tape. At least I haven't seen it. Um, and then Strong Hearts were in Mexico over the weekend. They wrestled on the Crash Show on Saturday night. Uh, those matches are available on YouTube. T-Hawk and L. Lindemann wrestled uh, Flamita and somebody in a tag match that looked really good. And then Shima was in- involved in a four-way match um, and then Shima was involved in a four-way match that featured Dragon Lee as well. So I will watch both of those and we'll put my thoughts on the internet somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it's no, uh, there, there's no mystery to me there. Shun Skywalker, my understanding is, will be booked on every IWRG show going forward, except for the ones that Stronghearts is on. And that is not a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And I know Stronghearts has a lot of North American bookings over the next two months. I know they're doing defy they're doing warrior i think they're not doing aaw aren't they they are not at least as far as i know they are not doing aaw i will more than likely be at the warrior wrestling show on february 15th to watch shima in person i uh, cannot confirm yet as i have started a new job where i work weekend nights and i cannot confirm whether or not i'm working on the 15th or not i will be super disappointed if i cannot make that show but the hope is that i will be there uh, to see Shima wrestle and to get a mark pick and a, pro- a future profile picture at that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting time. I can... The, there's a lot of things cooking, I think it's fair to say, with the Dragon System in North America. If you're someone who's mainly watched these people just on video, you'll get a chance to see a lot of these folks live. And it's good. It's going to be an interesting 2020 case. The, the Roaring Twenties have not like disappointed, at least in its first few weeks. I, I can say that for the very least. No, and this is. I mean, this will be my last thing I have to say. It, it's a fascinating time, obviously in wrestling as a whole, but to look at the Dragon System landscape and the offshoots of it, to see what Strong Hearts is doing, to see Toriumon now come back into fold, to see the unit shakeup and the generational warfare, and all of these new colors and teams and players in the mix. Uh, this is uh, don't don't fall behind don't don't you know be wondering in june what have i missed this is the time to watch the stuff listen to the podcast mike and i break this down better than anybody else on earth we are unfortunately those knowledgeable english speakers on the product with the exception of jay and alan forrell (laughs) mike and i are maybe not necessarily proud of that fact but this is how it is and if you want to follow the promotion watch this cork and hall show and jump on board because it it is not going to let you down this is a promotion that consistently uh proves itself to be the best professional wrestling on 
yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it. And as always, I have my must-watch list on Twitter. It's my new pinned tweet. Not doing big descriptions this year just because that just got overwhelming when it came in the year with other stuff going on. But feel free to ask us stuff on Twitter. And if you're a new fan, this is the time to get in. We are go- This will be a good time to familiarize yourself over 2020 because this will probably be the situation for the company all year. We might start seeing people break away from their generations as it gets down to and then have a full probably reset coming into 2021. But this is going to be the year setting up things. And this is already much more exciting than the uh, generation, the weird generation war in 2009. And I don't know if it's going to be as good as blood warriors versus junction three, but one can only hope. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point by Mike. I mean, Mike and I are resources. If you're a new fan, please reach out to us on Twitter, either at underscore in your case at Fujiheya or at open voice gate. We'll see it. And the, the one thing we don't have is, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of footage to, to share with everybody. Kind of what's out there is what's out there. And if you navigate the web good enough, you'll be able to find bits and pieces of the stuff here. Uh, but there's just not much out there right now. And there's not a lot that I think people are willing to put out there because there is a Dragon Gate network in existence, even if the archive is only to 2017 and very slim. And then they obviously have the Toriyama archives, which are going the opposite direction. They are up to 2001 now in those. Um, there's there's unfortunately not a ton of footage out there, but if you are talking about the modern product and, and you need assistance or just questions, whatever, please let us know. We'd be more than happy to help get more people on board. Yeah, and I'll say this. There will be... There'll be six shows on the network in the month of January. Even for fifteen dollars, that's three dollars a show. Like that's probably the best the, the best recommendation I could ever give for the network is they're adding more English content and they're putting up a lot of they're having a lot of live shows on the network. So if you're willing to make that investment, I think it is worth it. I just can't say that it is a perfect and great network that deserves recommendation. And I think that's gonna do it. This episode when we get started about Masaki Mochizuki, we can't stop. Like we, We're very spirited about that. But thank you all for listening. As Case mentioned, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Fujiheya. Case is at underscore in your case. Uh, the podcast account is at Open VoiceGate. Uh, rate and review. We're members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Uh, any plugs you want to get in before we get out of here? Uh, no, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore in your case, like Mike just said and you can listen to my non-wrestling podcast the art school albums podcast where every week i attempt to curate the ultimate art school playlist by breaking down an album track by track with uh uh, one of my many uh many friends in the chicago improv community uh we've talked about weezer's pinkerton uh neutral milk hotels and the airplane over the sea i have a great episode on bright eyes i'm wide awake it's morning that is coming out on thursday that podcast drops every thursday uh you can listen to it on apple podcast stitcher uh anywhere you get your podcast from with the exception of spotify right now although that will hopefully be happening in the near future yeah spotify is a punk about that kind of stuff and i guess you got this far i also have everything elite we're cool check it out but i think that's going to do it so for case i'm mike and we will catch you next time